freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 224 of Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. I am one of your hosts, Cheryl Todd. And I'm the other guy, Dan Todd. Our theme today is Adventures in Independent Journalism. <laughs> Sounds like a big movie, doesn't it? It should be a big movie. Our honestly. guest today is Ford Fisher. Ford is an independent journalist and filmmaker. He is the editor-in-chief of News to Share, a company which has White House press credentials and is a platform for raw video journalism related to political activism. There it is, White House Pass. <laughs> nice. Yeah, credential. Because of COVID, they, uh, they aren't letting in anyone except for pool press right now. They want fewer people in the White House. So unfortunately, I can't go in there right now. But generally speaking, that's my White House Pass. Nice. That is so awesome. I, I'm sure you are the first guest we've ever had that actually has White House uh, press credentials. I'm, I feel <laughs> super honored. And welcome to the show, Ford. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me here to uh, talk about independent journalism. Absolutely. So just to dive right in, uh, what is the problem that you see in journalism today, and how do you try to remedy it in your own reporting with news to share? Right. So I think that it's kind of a problem that's happened uh, throughout all of history in journalism, but now there's a new way to solve it, which is that uh, you know, when, when any journalist goes out somewhere, uh, generally speaking, mainstream journalists tend to cut down a situation, um, oftentimes in a way that tries to suit an agenda, but sometimes just in a way that's uh, rather incomplete. Um, so when I go out to situations usually related to political activism, I try to live stream the entire event beginning to end, uh, because in my opinion, that allows you to contextualize every moment that you include in a story, right? So I might go to an event, and you know, I'm shooting side by side with say CBS or CNN or something. And for those outlets, even if, it, even if they're trying to do their best job to be honest, they might end up putting on TV a package that's say one minute long, but the thing that happened was four hours long. Uh, you know, and so mainstream audiences, they get to see that thing on TV and it might leave them with a, an understanding of it, or it might be a little skewed. They might have kind of a skewed understanding of it. Uh, but in my opinion, using simple raw footage that has very limited or no narration by me, uh, complemented by a live stream of the entire event, is the way to basically show a thing in a complete way that I think subverts that uh, uh, problem that you get with uh, editing. The same thing is true of any other medium, right? If someone is uh, reporting by just taking photos, you know, they might be showing real moments in time, but the framing of the photo, which photos they use, 
which moments they photograph, those things all limit our understanding of situations. The same thing is true, of course, of a written article. You pick up a newspaper, it might not be lying to you, but it, it can't be complete. It just, it's impossible. Um, so in my opinion, live stream is really the solution to that. Uh, Ford, that's very refreshing because, you know, I turn on the news, I don't even want to watch it anymore because one is they're giving opinions or not really telling you what the news is. The second is they're showing the same footage over and over and over again. They take like a 30-second uh, strip and just continue it over. And it's like, I want to know the story. I, I don't want your opinion. I want you to tell me what's happening out there. So it's good to hear that. Right. Thank you. Yeah, and I mean, I think that there's been a move in mainstream media towards commentary. I see this a lot with like CNN, where they'll put up like a, you know, we've got a Democrat strategist and a Republican uh, campaign advisor, and then they stick, you know, one CNN person in the middle, and they say, well, since we've got a person on the left and a person on the right, you know, whatever comes out of this conversation, that must be truth, right? But just kind of having two talking heads that disagree with each other, that doesn't mean that the thing that you're left with is truth. It just means that you have two opinions instead of one. Absolutely. Well, and one of our personal experiences with uh, the way that somebody uh, framed a story is back in February of this year, uh, our store, our group was uh, involved in putting together a big 2A rally at our state capitol. And the news reported that there was dozens, dozens of people showed up. Well, the true number that was given to us by the, the, uh, the law enforcement agency in charge of the grounds was 3,500. We had 3,500 people <laughs> in attendance, but the news wanted to cast it aside like, oh, it's just, you know, some dozens. Well, maybe the news meant hundreds of dozens. <laughs> yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's like, well, there are dozens in thousands, but come on, you know? Right. And so we, uh, they did end up correcting it, but the way they correct it even is, you know, it's too far after the fact and it's kind of, you know, buried on page 900 or, you know, how it goes. Absolutely. Uh, but I, that is one of the reasons that I so appreciate that when I go and I click on one of your raw video footage um, uh, posts that I feel like I could have been there myself. So I'm seeing multiple different uh, directions. I'm, I'm hearing just the things that people are saying in real time. And I can kind of judge for myself. Now, I will say, as I did off camera, that if I was your mom or your sister or your aunt, I would be terrified that you are I mean, you're seriously placing yourself in... He's um, in the trenches. In the trenches. Yeah. It, it, you could be in some real dangerous situations because people are impassioned, they're, they're heated, some of them are trying to cause trouble, and there you are capturing all of it, and some people might not like that. Yeah, and uh, that includes both civilian and uh, state. I mean, um, so a month ago, while filming the third day of George Floyd uh, protests here in Washington, D.C., I was actually shot in the head with a rubber bullet. Um, I, oh, wow. Um, luckily, I was wearing goggles, um, right? So that didn't leave any kind of a permanent injury. I had kind of a half golf ball size uh, sore on my forehead for a few days. But, um, but all in all, it turned out fine. But there, were, there are other journalists um, one, one who I have sort of a mutual friend with, I reported side by side with someone who had just gotten back from Minneapolis and his partner there in Minneapolis, her eye was shot out uh, by, by a similar rubber round. So um, yeah, these things can be dangerous. I would advise that if somebody is interested in going out to them in a journalistic capacity, 
you know, be aware of what kind of protective gear, first of all, is allowed in a given uh, area, right? Don't wear, for example, uh, you know, hard bulletproof uh, uh, vest, like in, in areas that disallow it. Um, but, but be aware of what kinds of goggles, uh, you know, uh, face mask, that kind of thing uh, can prevent you from getting uh, injured or losing visibility uh, while you're out there. Right, because the police, they don't know who you are out there. They don't know what you're doing. Yeah, I, I don't, I will never know the name of the officer who fired it. Uh, in, that, in the particular situation in which that happened, there were protesters who were basically shooting fireworks at the cops. And I had been filming uh, basically side by side with the people who were shooting fireworks at the cops. So I, I don't necessarily think that that police officer uh, shot a rubber bullet at me because he said, "Oh, I, oh, look at this guy filming." I think it was it was a chaotic moment. And while I while I would hope that generally speaking, law enforcement's aim should be true, and I would I would wish that they would uh, kind of know their target uh, before they pull the trigger. At the same time, I don't necessarily think that I was uh, shot at specifically for being press. Right. And I appreciate you saying that. That's uh, even that is objective. That's the thing that I think we're missing so often is, you know, that level of objectivity. And that is something that uh, your whole site at News to Share allows for people to just make up their own minds about what it is they're seeing. Um, and I know that uh, your footage does make its way to national television. I, I saw you post recently that can't remember if you said it was Hannity or Tucker Carlson. It was uh, there, Tucker Carlson, yeah. There was a piece of your footage used and it and apparently it wasn't attributed. So what how do you how do you navigate that? To be clear, on the on that particular case with Tucker Carlson, it was attributed but not licensed. So the way that my business works, kind of the model of it, is that I go out and film things mostly on speculation. I don't usually have a particular client or anybody who's hiring me to do so. I go out, I film and live stream situations. Uh, so that my audience can see it. I do have a Patreon, so people sort of donate monthly. That kind of creates a baseline budget. But really the way that the business works is that uh, if news organizations or documentaries, et cetera, uh, see footage that I have shot that they need and missed, uh, then they can pay me a, a fee to license that footage. So in the case of Tucker Carlson, he actually did include a credit to me, um, but the footage was marked as, you know, no reuse without permission. Please contact me for licensing. I have, I've sold the rights to use footage to Fox News in the past. I mean, it's a, it's a perfectly normal thing to have happen that they say, oh, we missed this situation. Can we pay you uh, to air this footage? That's what I would have hoped that um, Fox News would have done in that case. But on, on that particular occasion, yeah, he used um, my footage to illustrate the, uh, the arrest of an Antifa individual here in Washington, D.C. Mm hmm. Well, I just uh, in prep for the show, I, I popped into your site and I was looking around <clears throat> and the situation with I think it was Jack Posobiec from yeah. I think he's on One America News Network. Correct. Yeah. So he's an OAN uh, correspondent and the individual who had been arrested uh, recently by the FBI over statue removal, allegedly, um, uh, had previously been in a uh, in a little bit of a standoff with Jack Posobiec that I also filmed. Oh wow, yeah, and so that one I was just I was watching how Jack handled himself because I mean it was him and several I don't even know thirty five people maybe just kept maneuvering around him and and wanting to make him leave and his point was, if I, if I continue going the way that I'm going, not only are you going to be able to identify my vehicle, uh, or at least the other people were saying that, but also the police aren't that way. 
I want to go, I want to have some, some help on my side. So I want to go where the police are. And I thought, oh my gosh, he really kept himself very calm. Um, and the, the people around him, I think were, their main goal was to provoke and see, you know, what they could catch him on camera doing. Um, and then of course you are the camera, but, um, you know, again, you, you don't, you're not waiting for something to happen. You're just saying, here is what's happening. And I Right. I and so for that same reason, I'm not going to uh, attempt to place motive on either side. I would say that in that particular case, the video speaks for itself and I would encourage people to see it. But I did think it was interesting, though, that that incident was actually mentioned in the FBI complaint against uh, the individual who was arrested. Um, but they, And they actually, they use the word assault to describe that situation. Uh, but at this point, uh, the individual in question has not actually been charged with assault. So I think it's interesting to note that the FBI is aware that that happened and and found it important enough to mention, uh, you know, sort of in a courtroom, uh, but that that charge hasn't uh, happened yet. We will see if anything comes of that legally. So your footage is used in courts as well. That's so valuable. Uh, yeah, so it has been. In, in the case of that FBI indictment, the... Um, the Jack Posobiec incident was mentioned, but my footage was not specifically cited. But it did actually uh, cite, this was kind of fascinating, the individual who had been arrested, I actually filmed him having a conversation with a police lieutenant named uh, Lieutenant Jason Bagshaw of MPD in February. There was a situation where uh, hardcore white nationalists, literally waving flags with the fascists uh, on them, had marched through D.C., and uh, the same individual led an Antifa sort of counter-protest against them, uh, that never actually broke into violence. The police actually did a, a pretty good job of keeping the side separate, uh, but it was a lot of cops deployed. And so this Antifa individual was mad at the police saying, how come you're wasting so much taxpayer dollars uh, defending the Nazis? And the cop actually talked to him for a while, which is kind of rare. Usually police are very like, they have to stand still and be very you know quiet-lipped and emotionless. But this lieutenant actually engaged in a conversation with him, which I filmed. And the FBI included that in their criminal complaint uh, in order to establish a pattern of his contact with law enforcement. So that was kind of an interesting uh, use of my work, but it has been fascinating. I think one of the things to understand, because sometimes people criticize me for, they say, oh, his footage is just raw footage, it's just live stream, but the journalists should sort of analyze or describe meaning, you know, that kind of thing, which I tend not to do as much. For me, I think that what I'm doing is really establishing like the building blocks of future documentary uh, about the time period that we live in now. So those moments, like that kind of conversation that happened, for me, I just put up video, here's the conversation that happened, and plenty of people in the future can analyze it or find meaning in it. In this case, it happened to be the FBI that did that, but usually it's filmmakers and news people. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought, I thought Dan was going to ask you something. Um, so what was the, the kind of the driving force behind creating news to share? Was it because you felt like there was a, a vacuum out there, that there was something missing? Yeah. So I actually co-founded it in uh, college with a guy named Trey Yinks. He's now uh, Fox News's Israel correspondent. And I would actually, I would recommend him as one of the uh, few people on cable news who I actually trust uh, quite a bit. So um, in any event, him and I started it uh, really at an interesting time in America because we were still primarily focused on covering activism, but it was the 2014-2015 era where there was a lot of protesting and rioting going on, but a Democratic president. And I think that that was, um, I think that was different in the eyes of the media. Like right now, it's very easy for them to frame 
you know, you have Black Lives Matter and they dislike Trump and Trump is the president. So there's this really clear kind of like binary political system that the media likes to show. But in 2014 and 2015, the grievances that Black Lives Matter had was re were really very similar to the ones that they have today um, with a president who the media did not really frame in the same way as kind of against them. Um, and so for us, it was important to be on the ground. He, he went to Ferguson, him and I both went to Baltimore and there was a lot of protests on the same subject in Washington, DC. Um, that was also a year that there was a lot of uh, fighting related to Israel and uh, Palestine. Um, and so there was a lot of activism on that subject. So really that 2014-2015 era, 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 uh, 2014-2015 <laughs> uh, era um, was, a, was a good sort of foundational time to set up uh, this kind of business of filming activism and kind of showing it in its own words in a way that the mainstream media wouldn't. So, so Ford, you've filmed a lot of uh, rallies and things with firearms in them. Have you, have you seen a difference or is there, there are usually problems with firearms or what, what's going on with that? Yeah, so something that's kind of interesting, and I, again, I'm not going to say that this is a good or a bad thing, but just my personal observation is that generally speaking, when people bring firearms to protests, I think that it might raise the stakes in a certain way, which is to say that if people started, uh, you know, violently fighting each other, you might have a greater chance of fatality as opposed to, you know, if people are going to hit each other with sticks or something. Um, but at the same time, when people bring firearms, they also tend not to engage in fighting, right? So when I have gone to uh, protests that are heavily armed, they're usually a lot less likely to actually turn uh, violent. The only, in, in seven years of covering stuff, the only time that I've ever been at a situation where a firearm was discharged, you know, in the context of a protest, right? I've certainly filmed people at police, ra at, or, sorry, at uh, gun ranges, right? Militias doing like training and stuff, but like in a public rally, like a demonstration in public, the only time a firearm was ever discharged was uh, Charlottesville, right? There was one individual who fired a gun. Um, he fired one single shot at a person who was using um, an aerosol can and a lighter to make sort of a makeshift flamethrower. Uh, nobody got hurt by the flamethrower and the round did not hit the person. Um, but that individual uh, did plead no contest to a charge of uh, discharging a firearm within a thousand feet of a school was technically the charge and he is doing four years in jail uh, for that. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I have not really seen uh, violence precipitate from guns at protests. It tends to be kind of a deterrent against uh, having sort of physical conflict. So when you go to these um, rallies, things like that, and the 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 side that's that's protesting sees you with the camera. Are you normally getting a welcome type of uh, deal, or is it are they cool. fighting you too? Yeah. So I mean, I think that this is also something that I think that the media can sometimes get wrong. There's a lot of focus on when uh, media gets attacked, as there should be. I I think that it is important that we cover when that happens, um, but it is also important to cover times when violence doesn't happen. Um, and so to that end, you know, when I film, for example, the, the Antifa movement, uh, a lot of people, you know, will, will message me and say, you know, oh man, you're going to get beat up like Andy, no, you're going to get attacked or something, you know, and, and that always could happen. Um, but I have not found in general that activists are uh, particularly violent against media because they're, the entire point of activism is that people are going out and trying to spread a message. And so right. people who are coming to film them do that uh, aren't really seen necessarily as an enemy 
to them, right? In some cases, activists might feel uh, threatened by, oh, if, if they're doing something that they could get sort of in trouble for, they want to, you know, not have people film. Um, I sometimes say, uh, you know, sort of sincerely, I actually almost feel more comfortable when activists who might not want to be on camera are wearing masks, uh, because it might mean that they feel less threatened uh, by the presence of a camera there. But, um, you know, so in, in general, most activists want their, you know, what's happening covered, uh, even by people who uh, dislike them, right? So I've, I've seen actually even, uh, you know, Breitbart goes to a lot of these events and live streams them. And generally speaking, people don't even attack them because it's like, even if they're spreading somebody's message to, uh, you know, an audience that doesn't like them, uh, at least pe more people are seeing it. So it's in my case, objective footage, they, people who know me know that it's not going to uh, twist their words in any way. And it's kind of irrelevant whether I personally agree with them or not. Right. And most, most likely you would get uh, hurt by accident, not intentional. Right. Yeah, I would say that I've, out of the times that I've been uh, sort of injured at protests, I would say that most of it is sort of crossfire type stuff. So it, like I said, there was the situation where I got hit with a rubber bullet a month ago. Um, during those same protests, uh, actually the night before I was hit twice with um, pepper rounds. Um, so they shoot these to people who are unfamiliar. Uh, the police sometimes use, basically they look like paintball guns, but when the equivalent of a paintball uh, explodes, it has something sort of like pepper spray. Uh, you know, a chemical irritant. So I got hit with those twice. But again, when a, when a cop is just kind of like mag dumping a crowd with right. them, I don't necessarily know that they're that they're aiming for me specifically. It's just I'm I like to be up close and close to the action. And so these are kind of the inherent risks. Right. If you were on the gas, uh, especially, the, is very uh, you know unfocused uh, yeah. in its deployment. Right. So if you're on the police side filming that side, then you might have gotten hit by fireworks. <laughs> it could be. Right? Um, yeah. So you it, just never know. In general, in the United States, I've found that you can't, you, it's very difficult, it's pretty rare that I'm able to sort of film behind the police line. I will say that I had an interesting perspective actually when I was in France, I covered the Yellow Vest riots, and I was able to get some, some shots that to me are almost like bizarre or surreal because I would never be able to get them in the United States, right? I was able to actually stand behind a police line and film like over the shoulder as they use like um, these kind of like rocket launchers to shoot tear gas at like, you know, 300, 400 feet away. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of thing, though, doesn't really happen in the United States. They tend not to allow you behind police lines. Wow, I didn't know that. I, I think I can understand that in some ways, but this is so fascinating, and I keep, like, mm -hmm. mentally putting myself in your shoes, and uh, I... Yeah, how did you get... How did, how did this start? What got you to say, I'm going to go film some rallies? <laughs> Yeah, so the first, I, I actually studied film and media arts at American University. Um, and so I, I initially entered it really with more of a film mindset. Um, and so documentary can be sort of a part of that, but I originally was more interested in fiction film. Um, but basically just the way it went was uh, with my, with the friends who I had, I ended up just sort of recording. Um, the first news story that I recorded with them was actually at Obama's second inauguration. Um, myself and uh, three other people, including Trey Inks, who ended up being the co-founder of my company, uh, we filmed the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, to those who aren't familiar, these are the people who, uh, they hold provocative um, homophobic signs, and you know they, they have signs that say things like, God loves dead soldiers, uh, or God sent the shooter, things like that. They protest outside soldiers' funerals and say, you know, God hates America because 
uh, America has gay marriage and so forth. And so they were at Obama's second inauguration to protest against him. And uh, so we, we similarly, we did kind of an, an interview that was, um, we chopped down to five minutes. We didn't have live stream at the time. Uh, but it was interesting because we were able to do this interview with basically a hate group and actually CNN put it on the homepage of their website. On the, uh, so the first news story I ever did actually made it onto CNN. And what we shortly realized from there was that, you know, we don't have to just give our stuff to mainstream media for free. We could be making our own website out of it. And that's sort of how uh -huh. this came about. That's awesome. So the fact that you have your own website, have you experienced any of the censorship that you, you hear people talk about, like on Facebook yeah. and Instagram and, and all those platforms? Yes. So uh, to name just a few examples there, I could, I could go on and on, but uh, here's, here's a, a basic overview. So I do use Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter um, as primary places to kind of post my content. I do have a website, but most of the time that people are watching my stuff, it's really on those social media sites, uh, as opposed to going to my website to watch them. The website's almost more like a directory of archival content. Um, so on, we'll start with YouTube. So, uh, as we've described, I put up basically raw footage, HD kind of reels of the stuff that I shoot on YouTube. Uh, and that tends to complement. usually I live stream to Facebook. So, you know, on Facebook, you get the complete thing that happened beginning to end. And then on YouTube, you get the HD summary video. Uh, YouTube actually demonetized my entire channel in uh, June of 2019, basically a year ago now. And uh, they said it was because there's content that is hateful on it. And so this, this posed an interesting question that I really jabbed at YouTube for about seven months uh, on Twitter. And ve I very publicly kind of advocated against them on this, which is that they basically weren't making a distinction between documentary content that covers hateful people and actual hateful content. So as an example, they had taken down a video uh, that I had filmed of a white nationalist giving a speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, this same video has been in, uh, in an Emmy-winning documentary, right? So this is not, um, you know, th this, is, this is news content. The content of that speech, if that white nationalist were to have made his own YouTube channel and then, uh, you know, spoken into a webcam and posted that to YouTube, it, it very surely would have violated YouTube's policies. But in the case of me as a documentary sort of journalist filming the situation and then putting a raw um, video of it online, I, I would contend that the, the person might be hateful, but that the video itself is not hateful and YouTube should be aware of that distinction. Uh, it took seven months, but ultimately they did actually concede that they had made a mistake and re-monetized the channel. However, individual videos are still often uh, demonetized or attacked. So as an example, um, two days ago, I actually filmed a really interesting situation where uh, right-wing pro-gun people uh, held a uh, event in Richmond and Black Lives Matter people showed up also with firearms to participate with them, right? So this was a pro-gun event that actually merged kind of the left and the right. And uh, they were united basically around a few core issues. They were, they're both uh, pro-gun and they were both uh, very concerned about police over-militarization, in, in particular, no-knock raids. So the Black Lives Matter people were talking a lot about the death of Breonna Taylor, um, a young woman who was shot seven times in her sleep uh, by a SWAT team who went to the wrong house to find a suspect that was already in custody at the time of the raid. Um, and the right-wing people were concerned about the death of a guy named Duncan Lemp, 
who had also been shot in a no-knock raid, uh, and his lawyers contend that he was sleeping at the time as well. So for them, both of them see, uh, you know, police, uh, you know, coming after people in a way that they uh, don't like, and they certainly don't necessarily agree on all of politics, but they found common ground in this situation. Um, what was interesting to me is, so when I posted my YouTube video showing that these two sides are joining forces for, a, it was a peaceful, heavily armed and peaceful demonstration, uh, YouTube took it down and their email to me explaining why was really bizarre. It said that it had violated a policy against live streams containing uh, the handling of firearms. So YouTube actually has a policy that says you can't live stream somebody handling a gun. Um, I... What do they I mean by handling? handling the, it, their exact term is, is I think it said uh, transporting, handling, or some, something else. It had like three words. But There's thousands of those a day. I mean, you can look on YouTube <laughs> right. every day and see that. So apparently the policy is specific to live stream and not other videos. But my video was a video. I had uploaded a video. It, was, it literally wasn't a live stream. And so they misapplied the policy. It was just flat out wrong. So I appealed it. I tweeted mm -hmm. at YouTube. YouTube said, well, because of COVID, it's going to take a really long time to review. We have a backup on reviews. I ended up just reposting the video with a disclaimer at the beginning saying, warning to YouTube, there is no, there's absolutely no scenes of violence in this footage. This footage is for historical and documentation purposes only or something like that. So we'll see if that stays up. I, I only did that a couple hours ago, basically trying again. I, I had held my breath for a day that maybe they would put the original video back up, but you know, we'll see. But so you, YouTube continues to do that sort of thing. I, I actually haven't really had issues with Twitter censorship, although I am aware that they suspend uh, people for, for kind of similar reasons. Um, and Facebook, I have had uh, some run-ins with where they've taken down specific live streams kind of for uh, similar bogus reasons. I, um, I guess I would contend that the, the thing that people need to realize is that it's actually not, in my opinion, it's not, a, the, that censorship is not really a left-right issue. Um, I think it tends to be more like it oppresses um, independent content creators. Uh, so for example, uh, on Twitter, I actually have a friend who's a very, very liberal, uh, you know, left of center journalist, uh, very openly so. And she covers a lot of the same situations I do, but not with the same level of, you know, uh, objectivity. Like she, she will comment, these racists are out here doing this, you know, whatever. Um, but she had uh, some images of people waving Confederate flags, for example, right? She was a journalist there covering it and she was outwardly criticizing them. Twitter actually twice has deleted images of her, uh, of hers and briefly suspended her for posting hate symbols, right? So this still affected a liberal journalist, right? So. Mm -hmm. Uh, similarly, I know of a person who wrote a book, uh, and the cover of his book is um, basically a bunch, it's, it's like an American flag composed of, uh, you know, the, the hoods of like Klansmen, sort of in a cartoon form, mm -hmm. and he made that his cover photo on Twitter. It's the cover of his book, right, whether you like the book or not. You know, he put the cover of his book and his cover photo on Twitter, and Twitter suspended his account on the basis of you have a hate symbol in your uh, on your Twitter. So I think that uh, the thing to realize is that it affects everybody, and mm. I I don't think that it's uh, universally just oh it only affects the right or the left. Uh, you know, censorship online. Well, I see on YouTube all the time historical videos of World War II, uh, mm. where they show the Nazi flag and they'll show 
uh, Germany invading France or whatever. It's historical information that needs to be out there. And what you filmed sounded to me like it was historical information. Now, you weren't saying this is what happened and I glorify it. You just right. said this is what happened. So if yeah, you're not have an opinion with that, that, I, I, that, it really frustrates me to see that YouTube pulls stuff like that. I think it is really important to document these things now in a, in a raw way because historians will look back on this moment and whether they look back favorably or not on uh, the Trump era uh, or the Black Lives Matter era 2014, 2015, you know, however history analyzes it, I, I don't really think that the mainstream media is going to be a reliable source looking back, right? Like we were talking about before, when CNN throws on a, a left-wing commentator and a right-wing commentator and their story is just two people arguing over the meaning of like 30 seconds of B-roll that they just repeat. When, when a historian looks back on that 50 years later, all that that tells them is what CNN thought of it, right? right. <laughs> it doesn't right. actually show them what happened. So I, I think fact. this kind of raw content is really important, uh, both to understand now what's going on, but also like many, many years in the future. I'm kind of playing the long game here, or I'm trying mm -hmm. to. Yeah, speaking of the future, so um, when Trump wins the election in November, do you think you're gonna be busy? <laughs> <laughs> I, heard that, I heard that qualifier there. Did you, yeah. you think you're going to be busy? I think, that I, I think that it's going to be a turbulent time either way. I think that if, if Trump does not win, and so I'm, I'm saying if and not when, but if, if Trump doesn't win, I think that the thing that will surprise people is that the types of people doing uh, leftist activism, right, the, the Black Lives Matter, the Antifa movement, and so forth, those people might consider Trump to be um, you know, a, re a, a very visceral representation of the things that they dislike. But I don't think that those issues actually sort of go away when Trump does. And those same people also really dislike Biden. They might have a slight preference for Biden over Trump, but talking to Antifa people, right? I know Trump loves to talk about like Antifa is the Democrats base or Joe Biden is, you know, a puppet for the Antifa or whatever. But in my experience talking to Antifa people, they don't like Joe Biden either. Uh, Antifa is not going to vanish if, if Joe Biden is the president in, uh, you know, come January. So I think either way. So yeah, if Trump is reelected, then a lot of these issues might continue or uh, get more severe. Uh, if Joe Biden is elected, I think that they will continue to happen. And I think the media might not know what to do with that uh, in the same <laughs> way that they, I think, had some trouble um, analyzing those sorts of things uh, during the Obama era. Right. Well, just like you were saying about what just happened in Richmond, Virginia, where you have, you know, these uh, people that came together because of, of gun rights, and it's confusing for people that want everything to be just like, you know, baby food for their brain, you know, it's just like, well, <laughs> exactly. like, how, how do, now I don't know how to feel about this, because here's Black Lives Matter, and then here's these, you know, white dudes with guns strapped to their hip, oh wait, the Black Lives Matter people are pro-gun too, I, oh, I don't know what to do with it, and, yeah. uh, go ahead. And actually, actually, if I can, if I may on that, CBS showed up for some amount of time. I actually didn't even notice them there, so I don't think they were there for long. But at this same rally, they covered the story and basically did not mention at all that there were armed uh, Black Lives Matter protesters there, right? So they, their, their story was less than a minute long. I live streamed for three hours and 40 minutes and then put out a 10-minute YouTube summary, right? So this was a long story, in my opinion. There's a lot to show here. Um, 
CBS's version was 10 minutes long. It had like a couple of little sound bites from white people with guns. And at the end, they had a tiny, tiny reference where they said, as you can, they, they showed the one black person who was there without a firearm on them. And that guy was speaking. He was standing up on barricades and he was speaking into a megaphone. And they don't show any of the words he was saying. They just narrate over that moment. And they say, as you can see, there were some counter protesters showed up, but not much amounted to it other than a brief conversation. That's what CBS said. The, it was it was an outright lie. Um, so <laughs> it, it was just wrong. The, the Black Lives Matter people were not counter protesters. They were engaged in the same protest. They might not have agreed on everything, but they were not countering one right. another. They were actually there for the same goals together. And right. CBS outright ignored the armed Black Lives Matter people and tried to make it look like the Black Lives Matter presence was brief, uh, unremarkable, and and in opposition to the to the gun rights people. So you know, it, when I, it was just outright fake news. You know, when I was yes. younger, I used to see the news and you'd think, okay, they're reporting this because that's where the money's at. What, what's their agenda? I mean, to give either not really false news, but they don't really cover the news. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they want people to know what's really happening? So I think that I, I actually, I posted this question online and I don't really have an answer to it, but I wonder whether they truly just showed up already kind of having in mind what the story is. Oh, there's some people with guns out. They're against gun control. We'll, we'll film a couple of them, you know, we'll show the, if there's any counter protesters, we'll get a shot of that too. And that, that's the story, right? They might've kind of come in with a preconceived notion of what the story would be, and then just didn't really understand, take the time to understand what was going on around them. Or they might've understood it and just sort of intentionally lied for simplicity. I, I don't know which one of those happened, but I think that what it basically boils down to is that the media tends to succeed. And by the way, the same thing is true of politicians. They tend to succeed by establishing things as a binary, right? For Trump, it might actually be useful uh, to make it seem like all of the people on the left hate guns. They're, the Democrats are going to take your guns away. The leftists are going to take your guns away and so forth. And it might be true that the Democratic Party is anti-gun, uh, but it is not true that the entire left is anti-gun. Um, and to the media, that also kind of drives clicks. For CNN, it might be really easy to describe. There's the right wing. They really like guns. They want civil war. They love Trump. And then there's the left wing. They don't like guns and, you know, whatever, right? And they make it seem like there's these just two monolithic sides that are always fighting, and that's, and that's it. And so when you go, when a news reporter shows up, a mainstream news reporter, I guess I should say, shows up at a pro-gun rally and they see people on the left and they see people on the right and they're shaking hands and they both have guns and one of the Black Lives Matter people is open carrying a katana. They just don't know what to do with it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and mind so blown, them, right? Right. And so for them, it's just easier to frame it as, you know, oh, it's just two sides and that's it, right? Uh, it would be easier for them to claim that Black Lives Matter is anti-gun for some reason, which by and large is not true. And I, I realize that the specific situation that happened on Saturday is not representative of, of every Black Lives Matter person, nor every pro-gun person. I'm, I'm right. sure there are plenty of pro-gun activists who would say, what, Black Lives Matter? We don't like them. And I'm sure there are plenty of Black Lives Matter people who would say, you know, we don't want to offer any, uh, you know, handshakes to the right wing. But that's what happened in that particular situation. And if you take the time to listen to them, you know, they might have different ways that they approach these issues. For Black Lives Matter, I found that a lot of what they talk about as it relates to gun rights, they see it as, as a civil liberties or police issue. 
right? Gun, for them, it's, you know, gun control is a reason for, for uh, police to come after our people, right? Uh, you know, it's another excuse police have to stop and frisk, for example, which in, infringes on kind of our personal uh, civil liberties. So they might approach it as a different, uh, for a different reason. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, Antifa often views it less as an individual right to bear arms, but rather a community right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that communities need to be able to arm themselves to defend against threats. And right, for them, they don't believe that they believe in defunding or abolishing the police. And so for them, they see it like the community needs to be armed to defend themselves. Um, so they might all have different approaches to these issues, uh, but it's vastly more complex than the right wing likes guns and the left wing doesn't like guns. And that's all she wrote. <laughs> yeah, I would, if I was a leader of uh, Black Guns Matter, or Black Lives Matter, I think I would uh, be pro-gun because their argument is that they can't, they're, they're not, the police are after them, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be a way to. Absolutely. And what I, I think I heard you say that at least in Richmond, Virginia, that, that firearms and the Second Amendment brings people together and that it creates a polite society. So I'm, I'm happy with that. <laughs> that wasn't exactly how I worded it, but I'm happy for you to uh, you know, analyze it however you like. <laughs> hey, if that's what she said, you said, you said it, okay? Later on, Cheryl News Network. This is how, right. how I'm going to frame it. Um, we are starting Cheryl to- Cheryl News Network, CNN. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is the other CNN, right? Right. Um, we are starting to, to run a little long on time, and, and I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but um, this was an important question that we've, we've kind of danced around a little bit in, in a lot of our other discussion. But when you're filming, you do capture the good, the bad, and the ugly of humans intersecting with one another in times of heightened emotion and disagreement. And nowhere do we see this more pronounced than when we see law enforcement interacting with someone who is being ticketed or detained. So what is your personal philosophy on people, citizen journalists, just mm -hmm. stand by, standers by uh, whoever filming the police doing their work? Yeah, so I think that this is something that I have, I've actually tried to advocate to um, you know, conservative circles, which I think are perhaps a little bit less um, uh, excited about about this point of view that I kind of offer on this. And I, again, I don't really do, I don't consider myself an activist. I don't do advocacy, but I do, I think in a way, do advocacy for a certain type of journalism, the importance of filming things in a complete way. And so here's basically what I would say. Um, I think that the left has largely realized the value of filming the police, um, and that's very embodied by, in particular, you know, viral incidents of police violence, uh, especially against African-American men. Um, and so for them, it's a tool of accountability. And I think that that, for me, it's, it's true uh, because, and, and I would, but I would frame it in a way that, that I think really should appeal to everybody. Ultimately, the police are the enforcement end of the state. And so whether you think, whether you sort of generally support police or not, um, I think that it's important to understand that at the end of the day, every law that's written that has the ability to, you know, penalize somebody in some way, arrest somebody in some way, uh, ultimately the, the police are the ones actually enforcing it. So when we talk about anything related to politics, uh, at the end of the day, how it's being enforced is really important to see. And so if somebody uh, generally supports the police or thinks that the police are going to do the right thing, um, that person should also want to film the police uh, because, there's, because accountability goes both directions. 
uh, right? If, if, the, if a police officer is on the uh, sort of receiving end of a negative situation, that, that would be important to film too. I do sometimes hear a counter argument that says, oh, well, sometimes videos are taken out of context, right? You know, to put it very simply, you know, if somebody punches a cop and then, uh, you know, the cop punches back and somebody posts on Twitter, just the cop punching them back, right? Then, oh, you know, you're vilifying the cop inappropriately. In my opinion, the solution to that isn't to film less, it's to film more. So I do think that live streaming situations related to the police, uh, particularly activism and civil unrest, but this can apply to even, you know, you get pulled over. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it, I don't I don't view it as uh, something that's antagonistic. I think it can be done in a uh, respectful fashion. Right. I, I don't think you should, you know, point the camera in someone's face and scream. Am I being detained? Am I being detained? You know, an inch from their nose. Right. So, you know, sometimes I've seen that kind of thing happen where it's not as productive. Um, but uh, in general, the the police, if they have body cams on, it's often very difficult to acquire uh, the actual footage that comes out of it, which I think is generally a government transparency issue, um, but it, and or they don't film it, and you know I think that it's better for the sake of truth if if footage exists and if it is uh, publicly accessible. If the police are the ones filming it and nobody else is, then you're essentially granting the state a monopoly on truth. Um, and I think that uh, you know any any uh, person kind of in the United States of any particular political philosophy. Uh, that values uh, truth, I think that that's kind of a critical aspect of, of our American liberty. Absolutely. I think that's well said. And, you know, if all the footage we see is, you know, when police officers misbehave, then who's going to counter that, that argument uh, to say, no, 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 they're, they're people like the rest of us, which means there's good and bad. In, in everybody. Yeah, so. I've, I've filmed a heck of a lot of police violence, a lot of it that people will criticize, uh, but by live streaming situations that pretty pretty much every situation I have, I film, has some kind of a police element to it. Activism is usually at least watched by police officers, and to the 90% of activism that does turn out peaceful, I think it's also important to see, you know, what went right, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how did this not go bad? Um, yeah. I think that documentation is important, and I'd like to think sort of existentially or broadly that uh, you know, tactics are improved in order to make uh, situations more peaceful in the future uh, based on being able to study what goes wrong when it goes wrong and what goes right when it goes right. I love it. All right. Well, we need to wrap up and let you get back to your awesome and important work. Um, tell folks just before you go, how do they follow you? How do they see this footage? Uh, if they are uh, Tucker Carlson's team and they want to use some of it, how do they pay you? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so my page is called News to Share, News the number two share on uh, Facebook uh, and also news to share.com. On Twitter, it's at N2S Reports and it's also News to Share on YouTube. Uh, my name is Ford Fisher, F O R D F I S C H E R. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Um, people who want to license content of mine, that means that as opposed to just embedding or sharing my work, but if you're actually putting it into a news broadcast, a documentary, a film you're making, whatever it is, uh, my licensing information is basically at the bottom of every YouTube video description. Uh, my email address is also on Twitter, or you could contact me on Facebook. Basically, one way or another, contact me. In, in the case of uh, small uh, things, you know, student publications and things like that, I often uh, will let people use things for free or a really reduced rate. Uh, but those cable news networks have the big bucks. Uh, and so those guys are supposed to, uh, supposed to pay when they leverage the work of independent journalists and freelancers. 
For sure, because that helps you continue the work so that they'll have a steady stream to choose from in the future. So (laughs) thank you so much. We so appreciate you. We value all that you do. And I appreciate you spending so much time with us. Ford Fisher of News to Share. Thank you, Ford. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, refreshing, real news. Without an opinion. I love it. I love it. He does such great work and scary work and (laughs) dangerous work. And um, thank God for it. Because if all we had to choose from was the pre-chewed, pre-packaged, narrative-laden baby food for your brain that we call our nightly news, then um, where on earth do we think we're going to end up? right? You, 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 when you're driving, if you look, you know, you you drive where you look. Right. So same thing. If, if all of our news is going to point us in a particular direction, where do you think we're going to end up? So I'm glad for the objective and independent uh, nature of his work. Sure. I mean, I don't even want to watch the news anymore because I'm watching what they and their opinions want me to hear. Mm-hmm. That's that's all I get. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just don't have real news anymore. We're being told what to thought, to, to, what to think, what to rather thought. what to thought, yeah. <laughs> what to think, rather than um, hey, here and and they're they're manufacturing the objectivity, as Ford said a couple of times. Where okay, you've got the CNN commentator, you've got the pro, the con uh, perspectives. And okay, there you have it. Now make up your mind. But it's it, yeah, you that's put two, just, yeah, you put the a news anchor with two people, one on each side, and depending on the news station, still two against If they're one. a liberal news station, it's it's yeah. that's what it, they want you to hear. What they want you to, they're going to make you hear what they want you to hear. Um, that O N One America has a little better, but they're still opinions too. I don't want an opinion. Mm-hmm. I want you evening. to show me. In the evening, they have right. their opinion shows. During the day, I do feel like I get the closest thing to what I grew up with right. as news. And it was just, this thing happened in North Korea today. This thing happened right. in you know Venezuela today. This thing happened in Virginia today. And you know, really kind of treats us like adults and lets us you know, chew the food for ourselves. I mean, there's digest time. Digest it for ourselves. There's figure time. out what we think about it. You might want an opinion station. Like sometimes we... Sometimes we give our opinion. What on Cheryl News Network? Yeah. <laughs> I just but, made so, that up today, I mean, but times, I like it. <laughs> there are times that you might want to hear an opinion of what somebody has to say to see their side of it. But yeah. when they force it down your throat, yeah, and that's all you hear, and, and just go to even, I love Fox News, but go to it. They'll show a clip of something. Mm. It's the same clip over, through all three over. of the stars that yeah. newscast. Yeah. Same picture. Yeah. I mean, you were this thing was going on for eight hours and you've got 15 seconds. And here's, here's the thing that really drives me nuts. If somebody is supposed to be a news person, then we don't want to hear their opinion. No. Give us the news, the thing, give us the facts, just the facts, ma'am. If you're an opinion show like a Tucker Carlson or a Hannity or, or one of those, then if you're tuning in, understand that you're not getting the news, no. you're getting this person's opinion about what they feel happened uh, worthy of sharing with you. But So it's not news, then. it's opinions. It's, it's not opinions, news. absolutely. Uh, 
in my opinion, we probably should wrap the show up right now. It's, you know what? I share that opinion. So do let's do it. All right. Well, how do we do that, Dan? We start out by saying, hey, what's up? No, we say, we, uh, we thank our listeners. Well, we thank our listeners and we thank our guests too. Thank our awesome guest. Absolutely. Ford Fisher. Ford Fisher. He's wonderful. Um, and our listeners are wonderful because honestly, w- these conversations would be amazing and fascinating for Dan and I, but uh, without you, they just kind of, they just stay in this room. Uh, but because you take these conversations and the questions that they pose in your mind, and maybe you do some more research for yourself, or you you chew on the ideas and, and come up with a new way of thinking about the world, or you share them with your neighbor, or your children, or your relatives, that is, that's the treasure. So thank you. you and, are, you're our treasure. Right. Uh, we we do, do thank you. And you know what I think today? Hmm. We didn't say the word this whole newscast today. COVID. Did we? Did we say that? <laughs> now you did. What is this? This is Monday, July 6th of 2020. And yeah, COVID is still here because I think it's going to be with us till the election. Yes. It'll go know. away after the election's over. I don't know. This whole thing is a little bit wonky for me, but um, until next time, pray for our nation. Please pray for this, yeah. this great and grand experiment and, and for what our stated purposes are in our founding document. We're still living them out to greater and lesser degrees. We've fallen and skinned our knees. We've, you know, strayed off the path, but let's refocus on our stated um, goals and mission. Yes, let's pray, pray for, for the, pray for our country. You know, pray for our country, the country that's the best country in the whole world. I mean, you look at it. I mean, yeah, we've got some issues, but we are the best country there is. People flock to come here. And you can say that without being boastful you can say that and just it be a fact i just don't know of any other nations that people are literally dying trying to get to the soil to live on the soil to breathe the air other than the united states land of opportunity um, still for all races for sure so pray for our nation pray for our leaders that's a different subject that needs a little bit of work but yes let's do pray for our leaders and our representatives most of them uh we'll do that all of them dan all of them even the ones you don't like okay especially the ones you don't like all right be good to each other have a great week and god bless